You're listening to Nick Luck Daily. This edition is brought to you by Fitzdares, by the Racehorse Owners Association, and by Thoroughbred Racing Commentaries Global Rankings. Good morning, welcome to the show. Great to have you back after the Christmas break. It's Monday, December the 27th. It's grey here in TW11. I think it's about to bucket down with rain as well. And the ground was pretty soft at Kempton Park yesterday for one of the great seasonal highlights of the jump racing calendar in the UK, the King George VI Chase. And it was the biggest price winner the race has ever seen. It's race not prone to shocks, hence the price of that winner was 28 to 1. Big, but not huge. And not that big a surprise that the winner was trained by the all-conquering Willie Mullins, who would have had the second as well had Asterion Folon stood up at the last. Paul Nichols trained the next three home, including the dual winner Clandes Oboe and last year's winner Frodon. He had some choice words to say afterwards. And we will be speaking to David Yates, newsboy from the Daily Mirror, in a few moments' time. But first of all, all hail the winning ride and the winning rider... Uh, aboard Tornado Flyer was Danny Mullins, who joins me now. And Danny, I'd imagine the morning after, and I know you're riding out for your mum mags as we speak, uh, you are still feeling the buzz of being a King George winner. Yeah, thank you. It's uh, it's an amazing day, you know. Uh, even waking up this morning, I was still buzzing. And uh, King George, uh, uh, it's, it's magic, yeah. I thought I had a decent chance of hitting the top three you know the, the way I looked at the race on paper tactics it was going to be run at a strong gallop and you know it's a bit more rain coming it was always going to be a long way home so uh, heading over I was optimistic of a good run but to think the way that he won that was uh, beyond my wildest dreams because for a horse who'd only ever had the one run over three months, I mean, it, it wasn't as though he was coming to the end of his tether. It seemed as like you were only getting going at the second last. Yeah, definitely not. And I suppose the interesting thing about that is going three miles yesterday in the middle part of the race, he was actually down a gear from where normally he'd be racing hard and just keeps galloping to the line over maybe two and a half. But Yesterday, it was just going so well from the ditch away from the stands that I was able to just keep taking back and filling up all the way down the back straight. And once I asked him to lengthen at the back of the third last, he just kept delivering all the way to the line. Now, I was watching ITV's coverage yesterday, and I, I really enjoyed watching Ruby Walsh watching you win the, win the King George. Now, here's a man who won a few of them himself. Uh, you and he had obviously discussed this a fair bit, had you? Yeah, you know, we'd uh, we'd had a good chat about it, and uh, you know, even I actually had a few good rides in Leopardstown, uh, and we were chatting about whether I'd go over or not. And I said to him, even you know, uh, if a couple of them win in Leopardstown and tornadoes in with a squeak down the straight in Kempton, I said I just I had to be on him and. You know, in fairness to Ruby, he rang me after the race and asked me uh, what won all the race in Leperstown. And uh, I said, I'm not sure. <laughs> he said, there's your answer. So he said, go for the big day. 
uh, the big day it was. And you, you'd had a nice sighter on Milton Harris's horse, Jackamar, the, the winner earlier in the day. Did that sort of fill you with confidence? Did, does, that, does that have any kind of impact on your psychology going out to ride in the King George or not really? Not really. You know, it's it's lovely to be riding a winner and uh, I suppose it gives you that bit more exposure. Hopefully, maybe going forward, that'll put me in a position to be picking up some more nice spare rides if I'm over there for Willie on days like that. Uh, but, you know, uh, Milton is a sharp trainer and he said to me going out, he said, this is not out of this. Uh, you just ride with a bit of confidence, deliver late and... Uh, it worked out uh, just as he planned. So you're you're out riding out this morning at your at your mum's place. Are you who are you, who are you on at the moment? I'm on a mare, uh, Iron Woman. She's hopefully run in a few weeks' time. So uh, yeah, it's a. Uh, keep the show on the road and there's no time to sit back and rest uh, maybe after the Christmas and New Year period we, we might have some little celebration but uh, no, no time to rest now there's plenty more racing to, to be coming over the next few days and try and get a few more winners yeah, and I, did, I, I looked at your your. I know, I know, I know you're on Flooring Porter, obviously tomorrow. I'll come to him in a minute, but I was uh, I was having a look at your rise this afternoon. It's sort of fifty shot, a sixty sixes shot, and a three hundred to one shot. But I guess at the moment, you reckon you could win on anything? Well, that's it. Yeah, you know, you, you never know what can happen. Uh, you know, the, the land, the paddy power. There's plenty of rain in Leperstown. It's softer than than it normally would be up there. So uh, we'll give it a rattle and. You know, as, as well, writing for Willie in those big races, uh, you're never that far out of it. As you proved yesterday, of course. And Flooring Porter tomorrow, he, he remains a, a very exciting horse, the Stayers Hurdle winner, but a somewhat enigmatic one. What are you expecting from him? I'm expecting a very big run, but as you know from watching the horse, uh, it depends how he is uh, <laughs> mentally on the day, physically, and that I think... Uh, Maybe I'm biased. I think he's the best horse in the race. What he showed me in Cheltenham last year was unbelievable. Um, in Navin, the last day, he was just—he went down to the start nice and relaxed, but was fairly fresh and and took a grip early in the race. Uh, I think that'll bring him on an awful lot. I schooled him in Gavin's uh, last week, and he seems to be jumping great. I wouldn't worry at all about the fall. It was just you know that second last hurdle in Navin. He missed it by an inch, and uh, you know, that's that's not going to be an issue for him going forward. I think just uh, once I keep his head in the right place, uh, he'll take uh, a bit of beating in it. But you know, classical dream, fantastic first run over three miles. Abercrombie's is in there as well, so yeah, it's a good race. And and just finishing where we started, Danny and, and Tornado flies. A really brilliant performance yesterday. Do you think that's that's his race? For the season, or actually now, do you think he can build on that and go forward, given how unexposed he is at three miles? Yeah, um, I, I think, uh, I think he could build on it. You know, I suppose tactically it worked out quite well yesterday, but you know, from if you stop the race and look at it from the second last home, there's no fluke about the way he gallops very strong to the line and. Uh, if you you forget the results and just go back and look at the card of uh, what horses were in that race, uh, it was still a fair performance, no matter what way the race was run. What do you think would have happened if Asterion Falange had stood up? Uh, I think he would have got to my girth and I would have picked up and went on again. Um, 
I could hear the commentary going down to the last that there was one closing on me but my lad was just idling in front and he just backed off a lot down to the last uh, I knew I had a lot of petrol there but the only thing I, I would have been worried about was if he came to me maybe in the last 50 yards or that but if, if he got to me at the back of the last uh, I would have had enough time to, to pull out and go again but you know Asterian uh, he's he's a proper horse too when it all comes together I was lucky enough to win a grade one novice hurdle on him and he's going to deliver a, a grade one pace somewhere uh, when it'll be I think nobody will be clever enough to pinpoint that but uh, it's coming for him too <laughs> maybe you'll be on him and maybe it'll be the gold cup who knows who knows that'll be a nice pipe train Danny thanks so much uh, enjoy the rest of the day and uh, I hope you can bask in the glory of it for a little longer definitely thanks a million Nick that was Danny Mullins hero of the hour yesterday in the King George VI chase on Tornado Flyer this is newsboy David Yates from the Daily Mirror Dave you were reporting on the big race at Kempton Park what was your overall feeling about the race? Well, it was one in the eye for those who think the racing has now become too predictable because Tornado Flyers' victory at 28 to 1 was the biggest shock in the 84 year history of the King George VI chase. And yet, not so in a way because it was Willie Mullins uh, who trained the winner. I thought that. Going into the race, Nick, as was a point made by uh, many people who looked at it, that this was a really strong-looking uh, King George. In the end, I think that what Tornado Flyer achieved was has to be seen through the prism of the uh, of the performances of a couple of the fancied runners. Obviously, uh, Minella Indo uh, was very disappointing, as was Chantry House, who was gambled on uh, to be favourite. I thought it was a strange race to watch. Minella Indo and Frodon cutting out what seemed to be quite a fast pace and, and disputing the lead. That raised my eyes, in a sense, more than Matt Chapman's Christmas card. Uh, particularly that Minella Indo, I thought, was a, a horse that... We, that, that would struggle to cope with the the pace uh, presented by uh, the three miles round Kemp. So of course, he was wearing cheek pieces. He was pulled up in the end. Afterwards, Rachel Blackmore said uh, he was beaten a long way from home. Uh, he was disappointing, and we'll see. And then off she went. Uh, Nikki Henderson obviously couldn't offer an explanation for Chantry House, and uh, hopefully one will uh, emerge in the next few days. He said, "Well, we'll just have to, we'll just have to move on and train the horse uh, for the Gold Cup." But um, to deal with the horses who did finish, I, I think it's fair to say. And Willie Mullins, we 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 spoke to Willie Mullins on the phone uh, from. Uh, he was speaking from Leopardstown, of course, uh, in the press room afterwards. And his first words were, wow, wow, in that he was surprised uh, that Tornado Flyer had won. It, it, he shared, I think, the view that many people hold about this horse, that he's been something of an underachiever over the last few years. Remember, he was a grade one winner of a, of a bumper at Punchestown a few years ago but he came into yesterday's race on the back of a nine race losing sequence which stretched back just over two years he'd tried once at the trip and had failed so there were lots of dots to join uh, with Tornado Fly and I think as a as a general rule and this isn't true in every case but you know the, the market tends 
uh, to know all about Willie Mullins these days, which is no massive surprise. So when he has a horse who starts 28 to 1, um, the, the, the inference to draw from that is that most punters have looked at Tornado Flyer and just thought, well, not for me today. But in the end, of course, he did come good. Willie Mullins said afterwards, uh, one of the reasons he's been an underachiever is that he hasn't performed in the second half of the campaign. Maybe he'll do that now. Uh, in the end, Dave, Paul Nichols, who's won this race so many times before, had to settle for second, third and fourth. In any, anyone else's language, that'd be a decent return. But uh, I guess he was left ruining what might have been. Afterwards, Paul Nichols, I think it's fair to say, wasn't glowing about uh, any of the, the three jockeys. He, he was inclined to think that uh, I think Harry Cobson had got there plenty soon enough on Flandes Ovo, uh, that uh, Gavin Sheen had made something of a, of a, a, a a fast move as the race was about to begin in earnest. And of course, uh, Briny Frost and Frodon at, uh, had, had set that, that fast early pace along with Minella Indo. And I think it's fair to say uh, that that told when it got to the end of the race. It was a great day for Willie Mullins in Ireland as well, with more victories for these star Chibley Park stud-owned horses. We spoke to Chris Richardson before the Christmas break. Uh, Sir Gerhard and... Fernie Hollow were both devastatingly impressive. Yeah, they were indeed. Fernie Hollow really has his career firmly back on track now, doesn't he? Um, he was he was limited to that one start over hurdles and then the the, the pelvis injury, but now he's had what two wins, Punchestown, and and moving up to Grade One level yesterday. And I, I think that sometimes you talk to trainers, and when they play down uh, there chances going into a race sometimes you think yeah not really mate you've got the odds on favorite of course you're going to win but I thought that when Mullins was was apt to talk about uh Riviere de Tell the the runner-up trained by Gordon Elliott that the fact that she was getting a gender allowance and an age allowance being a four-year-old um the fact that Fernie Hollow had to give his rival 13 pounds and that that she was already uh, a high achiever over fences. I thought yesterday that that length and a half uh, success, which certainly in terms of the numbers, was a fair effort, a very fair effort. So Gerhard, as you say, also impressive, started at uh, nine to two on uh, for the uh, the maiden hurdle. Uh, a good day all round, Willie Mullins. And I think the, the, the closing valediction, uh, as we were in the press room on that phone call yesterday, was thanks very much, Willie. Speak to you tomorrow. Yeah, exactly. Right. Let's talk about Nichols's future star, Brave Man's Game, who won the Corto Star Novices Chase. Again, a slightly bristling trainer afterwards saying, well, the horse did the talking. He obviously thinks he's, he's very good. When we asked him, I asked him, do you regret that comparison with Denman? Because it's something of a millstone around your neck. You know, you've got a horse who in 2008 gave, I think, I still think was the single most impressive performance over fences that I've seen with the possible exception of, of that wide margin victory in the King George of, of Corto star, one of his five, I think it was about the middle one. He said, well, I was misquoted uh, over that comparison. And I thought, well, I'm not quite sure that he was misquoted, but maybe the, the media had spun it out a bit, but yeah, I thought he was very impressive. His, his, uh, his jumping was, was really good. He cruised clear afterwards, Harry Cobden pretty sportingly said, you know, I, I don't think that a hoist and your was at his best today. So I don't want to get uh, carried away, but you know, th th this horse has done 
everything that we've asked of him in really impressive style. And we still feel that there's an awful lot more to come. And I think it's hard to, to argue with, with either of those sentiments. And Nicky Henderson, as usual, uh, went away from Kempton Park with a glut of winners. The ground might have been much softer than he wanted, but still Epaton won her second Christmas hurdle and he won the first and the last races as well, both with impressive horses. So the Seven Barrows team are really rolling now, Dave. Yeah, they certainly are. Um, obviously, the, the disappointment of the day was Chantry House. But as you say, he left with a, a treble. It was started by uh, Broomfield Berg in the opener, who easily and uh, landed odds of uh, three to one on. Marie's Rock won the, the close of the two mile and five furlong handicap hurdle. But it was Epitant who was the star of the show for Seven Barrows. A couple of years ago, this horse won the, the Christmas hurdle by five lengths, and she was very much on the way up then. Remember uh, how she had won at Newbury on Labrook's Trophy Day in, in handicap company, and then they'd saved her for the Christmas hurdle. She won that impressively. And then, of course, she went on to victory in the, the champion hurdle at Cheltenham. And by comparison, last season was a, a, a pretty bereft one. Henderson suge- suggested, said, she's back. That was a champion hurdle performance. And I think it's very hard to argue with that. I think that Epitont is just about back to where she was as a five-year-old. One thing it did appear to put to bed, Nick, was this talk about the mayor's hurdle. Um, afterwards, the trainer said, well, on the back of that, I think we've got to we've got to go for the champion hurdle. He said, I I think that's where we'll end up. But JP McManus, the owner, was a bit more uh, specific. He talked about the the trip in the mayor's hurdle and he said, you know, when you see a a mayor travel like that, essentially over two miles, you're reluctant to go up to a a stiff two and a half. And so honeysuckle or no, it looks like that we'll see Epitant stick to two miles and attempt to get her crown back in the champion hurdle in Cheltenham in March. Now that's a look at what happened today and tomorrow we'll be bringing you news of what's going to happen today including how Shishkin fares in the Desert Orchid Chase at Kempton and the result of the Coral Welsh National which features four previous winners amongst a really strong field. News just breaking, My Drogo has sustained a small tendon injury and is out for the rest of the season. My Drogo out for the rest of the season according to trainer Dan Skelton. Uh, before our Christmas break, we brought you news that former jockey Freddie Talitsky had won his high court action after a judge ruled that fellow rider Graham Gibbons was responsible for the 2016 fall at Kempton, which left him paralysed from the waist down. Now, subsequent to that decision, there's been quite a bit of commentary suggesting that floodgates would open, that there would be huge ramifications for the sport and the ability for jockeys to get insured and indeed ramifications for sports law as a whole. Freddie Tillitsky solicitor is Harry Stuart Moore. He joins me now. Based on what you've heard and read over the last few days, Harry, what's, what's your take? What's your feeling as to how this case might impact? Um, well, I think the first thing to say is, is as, as has been generally reported, is that the judgment makes very clear that um, it is not reinventing the wheel on the question of a sportsman's liability to another sportsman. Um, And that is the case uh, in racing and other sports generally. Um, I think that the the main thing to have come out of the judgment is the question of Dockey's insurance, certainly as far as public interest is concerned. 
Um, and really, I think a point that has potentially been missed in all this is that we're talking here about third-party indemnity insurance. Yeah, rather like when you drive a car, um, you are insured against any damage you might cause someone else. Uh, in racing, you, we currently have that insurance through the PJA, but you don't have any insurance essentially for yourself uh, should you get injuries like Freddie's that aren't caused by the negligence of another jockey. And that seems to me at the moment to be a point that's been slightly missed in the general discussion. So really, the only time you could get a big payout is if somebody else is found to be at fault. That's the only way you could get a payout like this. It's not as though you're insured if a, a horse slips and falls and you know there's no blame. You, you, you wouldn't get a payout like this anyway. That, that's right. Uh, essentially, there, there are insurance policies in place for career ending. I think that was renewed the other day. My understanding that's limited to about £100,000. And there is the, um, the PRIS uh, organisation, which is, I think, a discretionary trust which can pay out sums to injured jockeys. Um, but essentially, that's, that's right. Unless you can establish the very high threshold, um, you, uh, for another jockey's negligence, essentially, uh, as things stand, there is there is no there is no insurance cover, and unless the jockey is going to be able to pay those sums of money, and obviously very few, if any, are, um, those jockeys essentially are are racing uninsured. You must have heard the word floodgates um, uh, so many times in the last in the last few weeks. What what's generally been your own reaction when you've heard that, and how have you, how have you had to try and rail against that as a as a defence? Um, well, I mean, to an extent, we don't have to because it's made very clear in the judgment that um, uh, it's not a floodgates case, and floodgates obviously refers to the floodgates of litigation. Um, the all these judgments. Uh, on on sports uh, negligence, make it very clear that it's fact specific, and you've really got to dive into all of the features of the sport and the individual incident. Um, I mean, in in court, we had three expert witnesses, uh, and we were watching the race from six angles countless times for four days. Um, it is so fact specific that um, uh, the chances of of it creating very much um, litigation in itself is slim. I, I do accept that it may have changed people's perception of the possibility of bringing these claims because I think the general consensus, certainly when the news broke for these claims, seemed to be, oh, well, you know, jockeys can't really sue jockeys because of the Peter Caldwell decision. I think perhaps that perception has been um, uh, dealt with. But beyond that, um, I don't see this... Uh, as a, a case opening any realistic floodgates in racing or, or sport generally, to be honest. And, and is there is there a bit of you that thinks, well, if you're going to have an insurance policy, why wouldn't you have an insurance policy unless you were going to use it? That, absolutely, and I suppose that's always the danger with very high value um, uh, insurance claims: is the moment you claim under them, uh, the premiums can go through the roof. Now, I, I have absolutely no idea uh, whether that's going to happen in this instance. And a lot of that's going to come down to any insurer's perception of what the risk in horse racing is um, going forward. But um, yes, there, there is an element of, of, of uh, cyclical logic in it, which is that 
seems to be very important that um, people have, jockeys have this insurance, but the moment they claim under it, um, they are in some way being perceived to damage the, uh, damage the, uh, the, the sport um, by, by making premiums too expensive, which rather begs the question whether the insurance is worth having in the first place. And finally, Harry, uh, how does Freddie feel now? Well, uh, to the extent I can speak for him, I think he's very relieved. Uh, I think he feels vindicated. Um, he uh, has had very firm views about the cause of the incident since straight after it happened, straight after he regained consciousness. And those have been totally vindicated, essentially, by the by the judgment, who's accepted his version of events in its entirety. Um, and I think the other point he made to me during it was that he finally felt like he's had his, had his inquiry, was the way he put it. Um, and I think that is something that's perhaps been underestimated in all this, is that, you know, obviously Freddie wasn't at his steward's inquiry, and it was he, he was the one really being discussed, and he was obviously the major victim of what happened. So I think that um, that's a major thing for him, is to have actually felt that... that the incident has been properly um, analysed now. So interesting thoughts there from Harry Stewart Moore. Dave Yates is still with me. And, and Dave, Tom and Lee talked about this. Immediately the verdict was announced last week into this Talitsky-Gibbons case. Uh, and uh, clearly the, the sort of initial knee-jerk that this would have massive ramifications in terms of insuring jockeys, but perhaps was a slightly oversimplistic uh, read of the situation. Yeah, possibly. I think that, well... We all had our views going into this. I, I was surprised, Nick, that I, I thought that in general, in terms of uh, negligence and sporting injury, and especially in horse racing, not you know more so than in maybe football or rugby, I think that uh, judges are inclined to file this in the too difficult tray. And Karen Walden Smith certainly didn't do that. When uh, she delivered her verdict, she she went into some considerable detail about uh, about Graham Gibbons steering and how how he uh, used the reins uh, during that race. In the in her judgment, she uh, she talked about the the case brought by uh, Peter Caldwell in 2001 uh, for the, the injuries that he sustained and she talked about the differences. And so, yeah, it, it may be that that people who thought that there would be a, um, a, a sea change in terms of, of action in the High Court and uh, difficulties when it comes to insuring jockeys for essentially mistakes and negligence in the workplace, maybe they were a bit premature. Now, it is not Friday today, uh, but frankly, it's that time of the year where you don't really know what day of the week it is. So it gives me a good excuse to welcome James Willoughby back to the podcast to talk about a couple of really notable international performances that may have a significant impact on the state of the thoroughbred racing commentary global rankings, one from Japan and one from the United States of America. James, let's start in, in Japan because one of their marquee races at this time of the year, the Arima Kinnan, took place uh, yesterday morning and featured a sparkling performance from a horse we're starting to know quite well. Yeah, this is a four, yeah, Nick. Uh, yeah, good morning. There, there are two stellar performances to talk about here, but they're, they're different in terms of ranking. Let's, let's deal with the Euphoria first. Now, this is a horse that's done it. Very progressive. Uh, I'd already got loads of really good form on the board. He uh, ranked number 14 coming into this Arena McKinnon. Now, for people not familiar, the Arena McKinnon, as you said, 
is this great jamboree at the end of the Japanese season. It's voted by fan poll. And not all the horses, obviously, the fans select turn up. But this was a very strong field. And heading that field was the winner of the Tenno Show, another of Japan's most important stakes. Uh, the Satsuki Show, the Guineas. This is, the, this is basically the next big thing uh, in Japan, Euphoria. And he's a three-year-old. Next year, he'll be a, a raging hot favourite for all the big races there. And he's just basically doing everything you'd like to see of a future world champion. He's going to leapfrog in our rankings from 14 up to a position in the top four, I would guess. I haven't run the numbers yet because they, it's not time uh, to do that yet. They sit in the cloud. Um, but the point here is that Aforia had previously defeated Contrail. And there wasn't quite enough to go on to rank Afora above Contrail because Afora at that point was a developing three-year-old. There is now, and, and those uh, listeners of yours familiar with uh, how highly we regard Contrail won't be surprised to find out that he sits in the top 10 already. So this is a horse, Aforia, who is world-class, getting better, and is going to have a sensational campaign next year in Japan and um, the world. Um I need to, I, th I think I know the answer to this question, but I, and I'm not trying to lead the witness, but I'm going to ask it anyway. <laughs> is it an accident um, that we now just seem to be getting a world-class superstar coming off the Japanese conveyor belt as soon as the last one goes off and does something else? It's quite interesting, this, isn't it? It's, it's like, you look at these, there's like um, a maybe a 20-year cycle, I would say, where if you want to be a really leading racing nation and you put everything in position, it takes decades for it to turn the system around. The system has got, is very glacial wherever you are because you've got to produce horses, those horses that then got to produce other good horses. You need a, a base of tremendous mares more than anything else. And this is what we're seeing from Japan. And if I reel you off the last few winners uh, of this race, the Arena Kinnon, you can see Chronogenesis. These are names that are now becoming familiar uh, to those of us in the West who follow top-class racing. Kitasan Black, before that, or Fevre, Twice, Gentle, Donna, Victoire, Pisa. You know, this is going back to the mid-2000s. That's now, as I say, 13, 14 years ago. Japan, for many years, was this, always talked up as being a racing nation that was going to really dominate like it is now. But there has been that lag that I talk about. But we're there now, and we've just seen good horse upon good horse upon good horse being produced. And they're an absolute joy to watch. Well, talking of a joy to watch, James, uh, the performance of Flightline at Santa Anita uh, last night, our time, had even the saltiest and most cynical uh, US observers of the, of the turf uh, hailing this horse as the, the best since Frankel and goodness knows what other superlatives. It, it, it's pretty remarkable. Just the third lifetime star in a grade one, one by 11 and a half lengths gearing down in a hell of a time. Now, America's been able to produce top horses like this for decades and decades and decades. But what's interesting is, I think that, that we're seeing now America really sort of turning itself from the dark days and emerging into light. And it's going to be horses like this flight line. who's a three-year-old son of Tappet. It's going to carry uh, perhaps them back to the good old days. Uh, the Malibu Stakes, again, uh, a bit like the Reem McKinnon, is a favorite sort of Christmas time, post-Christmas time. Uh, grade one, if, you, if you're into international racing and you're not a fan of your own domestic racing and you kind of watch all the top races around the world, and this was won by Charlatan the year before, um, Omaha Beach, McKinsey, um, some really good names, Run Happy, 
and going further back, some really top horses. It's a seven furlong race at the end of the season uh, at Santa Anita Park. And um, it's for three-year-olds. So it's going to produce some very good horses. Now, this flight line has long been regarded. Before he stepped on the track, his reputation preceded him. And there's more to a horse's sort of uh, profile than we can rate at thoroughbred racing commentary because we concentrate on just on group races and this was flight line malibu states was flight line's first group race and it was absolutely sensational i've just caught up with uh, the pictures and before that he'd looked he'd won by a wide margin in his maiden allowance race he'd looked really really good the times he'd been clocking have been amazing and now he's done it in a grade one and i think it's it's not unprecedented for a horse to win by 12 lengths on his graded stakes debut. You can find a few if you go back over the years, but it's still extremely unusual. Um, now, in terms of ranking, caution. We have to be cautious because we've only got one piece of graded stakes to go on. It was in a small field. It was by 12 lengths and two pieces of form. We've talked about this idea, the rule of two before, that statistically, if a horse does it once and you go back and look at all those horses that have done it once, the guarantee they'll do it again is still a little bit shaky. A horse does it twice and the probability that it genuinely is a brilliant racehorse goes through the roof. So we need to see one more performance. I'm not pouring cold water on it, but we need to see one more performance from this potentially serious horse before we get thoroughly excited about where he is in terms of rankings in terms of the visuals, in terms of the time. This is something to get very excited about heading into 2022 in America. I mean, just reading some of the, the tributes to, to Flightline uh, on social media last night, Andy Serling, um, a legendary TV analyst and handicapper in, in New York, saying Flightline more than lived up to the hype. You have to really hope he stays sound. He truly is freakishly good. Um, another one here, this horse is so brilliant. This is not an ordinary horse. This is a very special horse. The trainer himself, John Sadler, calling him, this is an historic type of horse. You're looking at an historic type horse. Uh, these, are, these aren't people prone to, to, to wild exaggeration, James. No, but the beauty of this game is that no matter who you are, no matter what you've seen, no matter what you know, you still can't look inside a horse. And there are plenty of examples of horses who can't stand up to the internal pressure, the fractions within fractions in a race that sorts out the champions from other horses. Sometimes horses like Flightline can win by wide margin. They can clock fantastic times, but when they look a similar rival up the, in the eye, they just curl up. And that's not just a psychological thing, but it can be measured as well. It can be seen in the fractions that horses throw at one another during a race. But when you're as dominant as this animal is throughout, then it is easy to think that he's just going to carry on and do it every single time. And he might do in, in, in terms of that. And he can't do any more than he's done so far. But I just think that no matter what people say in this game, there are plenty that have fooled us before. And we need to see that second big win statistically. This is what the numbers tell you. The statistics tell you that one big win means an awful lot. And we have seen other, I, I understand we've seen Maiden and the allowance race and everything, but two big wins that's the time to get excited. So I should be remaining, I should remain fairly sanguine about this for now. Uh, and, and the rankings algorithm will probably put this horse somewhere in the top 25, 30 in the world based on a 12 length grade one win, which is very rare. But I cannot wait to see. Let's see him do it again next year. Okay, thanks to James. Dave Yates is still here and has a winner for you for today, Monday. Right, well, I'm going 
to Chepstow to the Grand National Meeting, Welsh Grand National Meeting, and in the 210 Bells of Peterborough, trained by Tim Vaughan, who won this race a couple of years ago. Just interestingly, uh, this horse took a step forward from Huntingdon to score at Fakenham about this time uh, last year in midwinter, let's say. And I thought that Bells of Peterborough would come on from his reappearance at Fours last. And if that's true, a mark of 120, I hope, will prove within range here. So it's the 210 race at Chepstow. Selection is number seven, Bells of Peterborough. Dave, thank you so much. Thank you very much for listening. I'm off to what looks going to be a rather wet, Kempton. I think uh, we'll see you again tomorrow. That was Monday, the 27th of December. Bye-bye. You've been listening to Nick Luck Daily, brought to you in association with Fitzdares, the Racehorse Owners Association, and Thoroughbred Racing Commentary. Thank you.